Welcome into the local angle. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike, and we're now just hours away from free agency getting underway in the NBA. The Celtics, of course, have already made their biggest move, trading for Kristaps Porzingis, which I mentioned last week. I absolutely love the move. It gives this team a new dimension, a guy that can actually score in the post, which I love that. All indications, of course, point to Jalen Brown signing that Supermax contract to stay with the Celtics. So the heavy lifting is done. They need to make some tweaks and all that, but the heavy lifting for this team is done by Brad Stevens and company just by bringing in a guy like Kristaps Porzingis. That's the level of player he is. So I wanted to get to the best player on the team, the star player on the team, which is Jason Tatum. So I did a podcast right before the playoffs started, and I talked about how rare it would be for Tatum to win the championship as the star player at his age, right? He just wrapped up his 24-year-old season, and... For most guys in the league, they went at 27 or 28 in terms of being the main guy on a championship level team. But for Tatum, unlike a lot of other guys, he's had a much better front office and much better teammates. You think about it for Michael Jordan, when he won his first championship, they needed to get Phil Jackson in there. They needed to wait for Scottie Pippen. Same thing with a guy like Steph Curry. They needed the coaching change to go from Mark Jackson to Steve Kerr and get those guys in the draft, the Draymond Greens, the Clay Thompsons of the world. And of course, Steph Curry was dealing with injuries. LeBron James had to go to Miami. So usually it's around 27 to 28. So Tatum still is ahead of schedule, so to speak. But I really believe that this upcoming season is when we find out if Tatum can be the best player on a championship team. And I know you could say, Brian, you're crazy. What are you talking about? He was just two wins away from a championship two years ago. Of course, he could be the best player on a championship team. Yeah, sure, that's the projection. That's the road that he appears to be on. But remember, in that NBA Finals two years ago, Tatum was not particularly good. 21.5 points per game, 3.8 turnovers per game. He shot just 36.7% from the floor. And maybe even more importantly, he was just 24 of 76, 31.6% from two-point territory. And to put that into context, if you look at qualified players in the 21-22 season, The worst guy shooting from two-point territory was Patty Mills at 42.9%. So Tatum was 11.3 percentage points worse than the worst guy in the NBA. The Warriors, they cut off the rim and they forced him off the three-point line where he likes to operate, right? And then if you look at this Heat series this past season, he was 11 of 47 from three-point territory. That's just 23.4%. And if you look at qualified players in the 22-23 season, Only Paolo Bancaro, the rookie of the year, he was last in the NBA, 29.8% from deep. So Tatum was actually 6.4 percentage points worse than the worst three-point shooter in the league. So, and I know Tatum was injured in that game seven, and maybe things go differently if he's not, but they also fell behind three games to none, and Tatum in those three games was five of 20 from three-point territory. So look, Tatum right now is a guy that looks like a franchise guy 85 to 90% of the time, But then there's that 10 to 15% of the time when you say, what's wrong with Tatum? When against the Warriors, he's shooting worse than anybody in the league from two-point territory. Against the Heat, he's shooting worse than anybody from three-point territory, right? And look, Tatum right now, he is a top 10 player in the game. And I love Tatum. I just think that this is the offseason where he needs to figure out a way to be more efficient, right? So Tatum shot 46.6% from the field this past season. That was 73rd in the NBA. 54.3% effective field goal percentage, which accounts for threes being worth more than twos. That was 72nd. You look at the true champions, right? The elite of the elite players in the league. Jokic, 66%. Nobody's Jokic. Curry, 61.4%. Durant, 61.4%. And the reason I bring those guys up and I compare that to Tatum at 54.3%, because this is the neighborhood that Tatum wants to reside in, right? He wants to be the best player on a championship team, an MVP caliber player. And so this is where he needs to get to, and he needs to develop a new weapon. Because if you look at his three-point shooting, 35%, that was 110th in the NBA, which is well below average, right? The average in the league is 36%, Tatum's at 35. So if you look at Tatum over the past two seasons on pull-up threes, this postseason he shot 34%, 33 of 97. This regular season, 104 of 357, which is 29.1%. Of the players that took at least 150 pull-up threes, only Dylan Brooks was worse. And Dylan Brooks is an absolutely atrocious shooter. Last regular season, he was 128 of 383, 33.4%. Last postseason, Tatum was 37 of 112, 33%. So if you look at that totality, 
of his pull-up threes over the past two seasons, including the playoffs, 302 of 949, which is 31.8%. That's a lot of threes, and the percentage is really bad. So look, I give Tatum credit that he's improved on some things. He got to the free throw line more last season, right? He went from 6.2 attempts per game to 8.4. That's a huge improvement. That 8.4 ranked eighth in the NBA right behind Jimmy Butler. So the foul drawing got better. So that was a big improvement, and it helped him increase his scoring from 26.9 up to 30.1. He was getting almost an extra two points per game at the free throw line. But I think he and his skills coach, Drew Hanlon, and we've already seen them working out in videos, they have to look under the hood and say, hey, where can we get better? They did it last year with the free throw drawing. He has improved defensively. He's improved as a creator. He's improved as a passer. He's already an elite rebounder in the league. But if we look at the two years of evidence, it tells us that his three-point shooting, especially his pull-up three-point shooting, it's not good. Just overall the last two years, just on pure threes, 35.3% and 35%. So you're going to double down on that if you're Jason Tatum and just keep taking more threes? Because last season, what we saw is he took 9.3 a game. The only guys that took more threes than Jason Tatum on a per-game basis, Damian Lillard and Klay Thompson. Dame was at 37.1%. Klay was at 41.2%. And Donovan Mitchell was right behind Tatum at 38.6%. And so if you look at it, those guys shot a lot of threes, and they shot really good percentages on their threes, especially in the case of Klay Thompson and Donovan Mitchell, right? I'm not saying that Tatum should just abort taking threes. But you have to develop another weapon, whether it be a floater or whether it be something in the mid-range variety. So if you look at the two other guys, or two of the other guys, I should say, on the All-NBA squad with Tatum, Luka Dantich and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Now, you can argue that Luka takes too many threes, but despite the low three-point percentage, Luka was at 49.6% from the field this past season, compared to Tatum at that 46.6, and Shea, by the way, was at 51%. So these guys have been more efficient. Why? Because they both get to the free throw line more than Tatum, but the 8.4, that number's fine for me when it comes to Tatum. But the other thing I'd look at, both these guys are constantly in attack mode. So Shea was at 23.9 drives per game last season, first in the NBA. Luka was at 19.7, which was third. Tatum was at 11.2, which was 42nd. So I'm not expecting Tatum to have Shea or Luka numbers as it pertains to drives because they're guys that always have the ball in their hands. But can he get into the 14 per game range? Like even Giannis or Bradley Beal's at 15.9. So can you get into that range, the Bradley Beal-Giannis range? Because Shea was at 17.1 points per game off his drives, and Luka was at 14.6. That was number one and number two in the NBA. Tatum was just at 8.2. But just a few extra drives a game, you're at least going to get into double digits. So stylistically, I get they're different, and Tatum is not the same level of ball handler, but he can attack the basket a little bit more rather than settling for all those tre- all those threes. And the reason I bring that up is just because he needs to be better between the restricted area and the three-point line. So if you look at the two-point shot attempts per game, Shea was at 17.8, which was first in the NBA. Luka was at 13.8, which was eighth in the NBA. And Tatum was at 11.8. That was just 19th in the NBA, right? So, And if you look at the percentages, so those guys took a lot more twos than Tatum did. And it makes sense that Tatum should take more twos because he's not a good three-point shooter. And if you look at the percentages, Shea was at 53.3%, Luka was at 58.8%, and Tatum was at 55.8%. So Tatum was right in between those guys in terms of the field goal percentage on twos, right? He was better than Shea. And look, I get it. Twos that aren't at the rim, they're not analytically friendly, right? But both those guys found a way to score efficiently without being good three-point shooters. Shea barely took any threes. And if you go back to the Miami series, Tatum's shot chart made no sense. We told you before that Miami was second to last defending the two this past season at 56.9%, right? They were bad. The only team worse than Miami defending the two this season was San Antonio, who just so happened to have the number one pick in the draft because they were so bad. And if you look at Tatum in that series, he took 81 twos. He had 49 of them. Great number, 60.5%. He took those... 47 threes, and he hit just 11, 23.4%. So I get it. That's a lot of twos that he took, but he could have taken even more because he was shooting it at such a high level. And because he was so bad from three, Miami was getting bailed out by those shots that Tatum was deciding to take. So my whole thing is this. His three-point shooting failed him against Miami. He had something that was working, which was his two-point game. 
And then two years, and he went away from it. Two years ago against Golden State, his two-point game was not good enough, and the Warriors exposed that. So my hope is that Tatum can develop a consistent spot he can score from. And he has to be honest with himself and realize, hey, I'm not a good three-point shooter. And I need to do something else that's going to help me be more dangerous. And like, hey, two-point shots, I get it's not the efficient way to do things, but you got to find a different way to score. Because right now, it feels like teams across the league can look at Tatum and say, hey, you know what? This is a guy that if his three's not going and we stop him from getting to the free throw line, we can completely stop sort of what he's doing. And I know the three-point shot is something that he has been living off, but can he develop a mid-range game? Or can he develop a floater? Or how about this? Can he post up more? Because last year, Tatum was in the 94th percentile as a post-up scorer. 1.22 points per possession. But the problem was he only had 72 attempts. But this is another thing. If he gets a smaller defender switched on him, Tatum can do a nice job posting guys up and punishing them when he gets into those areas against smaller players. And look, my whole thing is Tatum's an elite player. I don't want to make it sound like I'm not a huge fan of Jason Tatum. I am. It's just he needs one more weapon. And if he wants to get to that MVP caliber level, which you need to do because the last four teams to win a championship without an MVP, 89 Pistons, 90 Pistons, 2004 Pistons, 2009 Raptors with Kawhi. And that means just teams that won a championship without a current or a former MVP. So to win championships, you have to have a player that at least plays at that MVP level like we saw from Kawhi Leonard in 2019. And it's just the biggest thing is, one more weapon. Tatum's almost there. He's a superstar 90% of the time, but that other 10%, can he get there by adding a mid-ranger, adding a floater, or posting guys up more? Just one more step he needs to take. All right, a lot more coming up on the local angle. You'll hear from my buddy John Jastrzemski from New York, New York, Jason Goff from the Full Go in Chicago, and the guys from the Philly Special as well. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hello and welcome to The Local Angle. It's the Ringers Philly special. Raheem Palmer is joining me, Chris Ryan. We are doing an emergency local angle, an emergency Ringers Philly special because James Harden has opted into the last year of his deal for $35.6 million, which means in all likelihood, Raheem, he is going to be traded out of Philadelphia. It's it's huge news. It's pretty shocking because we had already done some recording this week, man, where we were talking about being at peace with this Sixers team essentially being a run it back situation and that we were kind of like, you know what? Continuity, new coach. Let's see what happens. Who knows? Boston could go sideways. Miami might not get so lucky, yada, yada. And now we are, uh, look, the the only constant with Philadelphia 76ers basketball is change. And we're going to get another change of the roster this season. Raheem, when you first heard the news, Shams reported it. What did you think when you found out that James Harden was opting in only to be traded? Well, it was it was clear at that point that Houston didn't want to pay him. And he had, he had been using Houston all year long for leverage to get what he wanted out of Philadelphia. And it was also clear that Philadelphia wasn't going to give him a long-term deal. So it was pretty surprising for me because we all know Daryl Morey and James Harden, I mean, they, they roll together. Yeah. So, for Philadelphia to, to put their foot down and say, 
we're not going to pay James Harden. And then also for the Rockets to basically pivot and say, we're going to go after Fred Van Vliet. We're going to go after Dylan Brooks as opposed to James Harden. It said a lot about what the market thinks about James Harden, but it also says a lot about what teams are going to do going forward with the set with the new CBA in the new second April. Yeah, I you know the star hunting seems to now be gonna get it's gonna get done through trades, and that's been the case for a couple of years. But you look at the Bradley Beal deal, which was unique because of Beal's no trade clause giving him, you know, unquestionable leverage. But it'll be fascinating to see what Daryl Morey and James Harden's personal relationship means to the trade conversations that we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. Already, the LA Clippers have been suggested as a possible, if not probable, destination by various outlets. You've also got some chatter about the Knicks, about the Heat. Um, who knows who else could get involved? But the idea, as has been suggested, that Harden wants to be traded to a contender. Uh, you know, the Sixers don't owe Harden what they owe, what the Wizards owed Beal. Beal could no Beal could veto a trade if if uh, if Michael Winger was like, "Hey, I want to trade you to Minnesota, or I want to trade you to Portland, or I want to trade you to San Antonio." Uh, it was really up to Beal is where he wanted to go, and he wanted to go to Phoenix instead of Miami. I, I don't, Harden doesn't necessarily have that leverage in writing in his contract, but it seems like there has been some sort of agreement between the Sixers. It sounds like as of Thursday, they had already started discussing trade destinations, and the Clippers one seems to be the one, at least as the clubhouse leader. Yeah, well, see, they don't owe James Harden, but I do think they kind of owe him in certain ways. Like, this is a guy who took a $15 million pay cut to return to the team last year. He declined his 473 million dollar option. He signed a two-year, $68 million deal with the second year being a player option. And he took less money so that the Sixers could bring in P.J. Tucker, so they could bring in other guys. And I think he did that with the intent of, okay, I want to win a championship. I'm sacrificing. I'm the number two guy. Joel Embiid's the number one guy. And if things go well, they're going to give me my four-year max or five-year max to close out my career. And it seems as though the playoffs have changed things. So I can understand why James Harden would want to trade. I think you got, you have to give James Harden some credit because he made all of the sacrifices. So I'm not surprised that this trade demand is coming. And like you said, the, the Clippers appear to be the front runner. And I think they may have the pieces to do it. So are, you're not surprised. Are you bummed? Uh, not really. When you consider all the sacrifices that he made, I actually think it's 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 quite admirable. And he's also at a point where, I mean, obviously, I think the Sixers are kind of looking out for him by saying we're gonna we're gonna help you, we're gonna facilitate a trade because there aren't really many places that have the cap space for James Harden. So I'm I'm I won't say I'm bummed, but it's just it, it just what has to be done at this point. <laughs> I think it's indicative of how ambivalent a lot of Sixers fans are about Harden and about the Harden experience that we're yeah. we're not able like to come up with a get this bum out of here or <laughs> I'm I'm really upset you're trading the heart and soul of the team. It's it's somewhere in the middle of that. I can't say that I enjoyed the Harden basketball experience that much. Like there were times there were highs where I was like this guy is absolutely amazing. And I do think that he was probably the best point guard slash facilitator slash playmaker that the Sixers have had in the backcourt since Allen Iverson, straight up. Like, it's just been a pleasure to watch him pass the ball when he did. And when he was healthy and when he played well, it was great. As we saw in the playoffs, he was capable of incredible, like, incredible highs and incredible, devastating, in, like, inexplicable lows. And so I, I'm, I'm happy to be off that roller coaster. And honestly, yeah. it's a lot easier to uh, make excuses for bad ex- performances when you just like the player. And that that comes down to straight up just being like, I don't like dudes who dribble the air out of the ball at the top of the key and hunt for fouls. And that's still a huge component of Harden's game. And, and, and it's just not not my jam, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, James Harden will take you there. But when it matters, you're going to get what he gave you in Game 7. I mean, this is a guy who... 45 points in game one, 42 points in game four. He single-handedly won those games. And yeah. the one thing I'll say about James Harden that I I felt like I enjoyed is that I felt like he unlocked another level of Joel Embiid. I was looking at the second spectrum stats today. 
the Joel Embiid, James Harden pick and roll with James Harden as the ball handler, they scored 1.12 points per possession. So they were unstoppable. Except in the and, playoffs. Yeah, seven in the playoffs. But you look at the Tyrese Maxey, Joel Embiid pick and roll, 1.03 points per possession. So James Harden did a lot of good. He made a lot of sacrifices. But I'm not sad that it's totally coming to an end. So at, at this, the end of the day. this is a, another reason why I think I'm not celebrating, but I'm also not like crying my eyes out is that just don't know what we're going to get back from. And I have to assume given just the chessboard right now, I, I saw some wild, windy w- Brian Windhorst talking about like Kyrie Irving or Damian Lillard could be in play for the Sixers. And I guess I would put nothing past Daryl Morey, but I, I assume a guy as intelligent as Morey is has plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way to Z. And he's he was ready, prepared for this eventuality of Harden not coming back or asking to be traded. That being said, like this has been from Ben Simmons were not taking the shot in Atlanta to now a pretty weird phase of this franchise. But, yeah. you know, Simmons sitting out like Maury waiting for the price that he wanted for the return that he wanted Harden arriving in the private jet hugging Maury on the like the landing strip or where, like at the airport Harden being on a Sixers being amazing getting hurt coming back Christmas day of this past season Woj reporting that he was going to you know maybe go back to Houston all of the speculation about Houston throughout the second half of the season some truly incredible basketball some truly bizarre basketball by him a, a kind of dis- very disappointing playoffs from him and then this kind of like, oh, I guess he doesn't really have the market free agency-wise that he thought he did. He's probably just going to come back, and that's good because we won't lose the asset for nothing, and maybe maybe there's something to this. And now we arrive at this, which I don't think anybody had really thought of. And now we're, we're probably looking at getting multiple pieces that will financially add up to what Harden makes in $35 million, and you can go through the rosters of the Clippers and the Heat and the Knicks and make, make all sorts of deals. But there's not going to be a guy there that's James Harden. Yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, when I heard that the Clippers were one of the favorites to get James Harden, my first thought was I would love to have Paul George. That was was the first thing I thought of. Because he had been, there had been some conversations about whether or not PG was going to be in in play for the scoot pick that that Portland wound up making. That, That the number three, the Portland number three might be traded with whatever you need to make work for, for Paul George. And I, w- I would love to see, because I, I, I feel like Paul George and Joel Embiid would give you a top five defense. And our perimeter defense would be better. And then I think you could empower Max. Now, we all know when you're trading a star player, you don't tend to get equal value. You tend to get, you know, 75 cents, 25 cents on the dollar. So I think you had a, a trade that you thought would, would work out well for us. Yeah, I mean, this is the one that I think I would be happiest about was, is with the Clippers. It's it's Terrence Mann, it's Norman Powell, and it's the return of Robert Covington. And Mann, I think, paired with Maxi is a really exciting backcourt. I think Mann has been a really up-and-down player for the Clippers, partially because the Clippers' rotations are so weird, and Ty Lue will have a guy playing... 28 minutes a game and then he's out of the rotation two weeks later. And so I think Terrence Mann's really suffered from that. And that Clippers team has been impossible to get any kind of continuity going because of the injuries that they, they routinely are going through. Pal's pal. You know, I'm not expecting him to be anything but a guy who's capable of having a heat check night where he can go for 25, but sometimes have nights where he's anonymous. I think he's a good shooter and he's a little streaky, but he's, he's, he, we could definitely use the perimeter shooting. And then Rocco is just like an emotional pick over uh, Morris, who is just seems like a pointless acquisition for Philly, despite it being a hometown return for him. Yeah, I think I think Morris is watching it. And also, I mean, I just, I don't know if Morris has the right attitude for what you're trying to build, when you're trying to build a contender. And then also, I never really like bringing guys to their hometown. I just Well, think I, I think if Morris to- came back, that feels like a redirect then or like buying him out or whatever it would be. Like, I, I don't know what, but yeah, Roko is like, I'm not, I, I'm not, that's not like necessarily like Marcus Smart right there, but like I, I always loved Covington and was happy to have him on the Sixers and was bummed when we traded him for, for to Minnesota, even though obviously the Butler trade was a trade you had to make. Um, 
so there's a bunch of other ripple effects that I want to talk to you about here, Raheem. So okay. you go through this entire process and we could talk a little bit more about who else we might trade him to. And frankly, there's also reporting out there that's like, this is in some ways Harden's way of testing the market. And if he doesn't get the trade that he wants or more, he can't find the trade that he wants, like he may still come back. So uh, I'm trying to get too ahead of ourselves just a couple of hours after this story broke. Obviously, there's been no comment yet from the team or from Harden's camp. So this is just all kind of like being reported. All right, Raheem, we have like a ton of other things we can talk about. We'll talk about them on the Ringers Philly special podcast. For now, this has been The Local Angle. Thanks to Raheem Palmer. You can listen to us on the Ringers Philly special. Raheem, thanks, man. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. We are officially now, I believe, the blackest uh, podcast on the ringer on the sports side. On the sports side, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take anything away from higher learning or you know any of the other peeps. Running shout around. out Van Latham. Yeah, shout out to Van. No, my sheer, my sheer numbers. This is this is the blackest podcast on the ringer. This is the yeah. Does any podcast on the ringer have more than four black men on it? Huh? I, I, we need to chill too, though, because, you know, the sister's going to come swinging in in any, any second now. Like, hey, by the way, y'all can mix it up a little bit more if y'all want. So shout out to the sisters out there as well. I don't want no smoke. I'm just trying to get through the summer happy and healthy. Uh, speaking of, uh, how about that air outside, huh? Huh? Y'all sitting out at the Cubs game in in the worst air quality in the world right now? Smoking a pack of cigarettes. Stupid. Duh. You go out and go. I took a phone call outside and my dumb ass sat out there for like nine minutes and was wondering like, damn, I barbecued earlier. Like, is that, is the, is the grill still lit? Like what's, what's happening out here? It, you, it is, there is a haze over the town and, and, and not the one that you like either. It's one that makes you feel icky. Like I, y'all saw me. And by the way, I have to apologize. I have to apologize. What was the pod before last? Listen, man, I don't know what happened. But I had the worst allergy attack that I have had in in years, and it just so happened to happen right on the day where we do uh, the FanDuel TV situation or the local angle, where I'm sitting there spitting and my nose is running like a badass kid. Like it was all bad. Like I don't know how they used that footage. I don't know how y'all listened to that pod. For the people who tuned in, was it two episode two fifty eight? Look at y'all. Y'all about to go back now and listen to it and be like, ah, let's see how really how really poorly he sounded but man i was hurting you hear me like i was that was flu game okay that that was david wells drunk and throwing a no hitter like that was i was in a bad bad way and i'm not a pill popping dude so i don't like to take a whole bunch of allergy medicine or medicine or anything like that no 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 drug me up if that ever comes around again i have no problems calling out sick with allergies from here on out and then on top of it i gotta go outside i can't breathe i can't breathe Air quality index. Who who made this up and when did this happen? Man, I walked I walked to get the mail and I got a headache. 
It's crazy outside. Why? And what if you want to be outside? Like we get like maybe two and a half months of this the whole year when we get weather where we can be outside. You mean to tell me all of a sudden because shit is happening in Canada and the wind is blowing the wrong way and, and, and climate change and all this other stuff. Now all of a sudden I got to breathe in the fu- uh, fucking diesel fuel exhaust pipe now? Like, that's what I got to do? Man, I tell you, you know, like what? What they gonna do next to us, huh? Y'all already ain't fixed the water. Y'all thought y'all thought we forgot about that. <laughs> the, the water ain't fixed yet, so we're still waiting on that. Now we can't even go outside. It's bad out here. It's absolutely atrocious out here. But you know we got the old sports roo. And in that conversation that I had with Bill Simmons, it was a conversation that I wanted to have on this on this pod in this episode especially. Um, you know the relevant of being the number one pick or having the number one pick or having the best player in a sport. Like we've all felt and known that in this city in my lifetime, at least, right? Like seeing the number one pick with Derrick Rose, had that conversation with Bill Simmons about what's happened since Derrick Rose with the Chicago Bulls, right? You've seen the best player on a team or on a sport, right? Walter Payton. On the football side of things, Jordan, obviously on the basketball side of things, but to have that number one pick and what's getting ready to happen in Nashville for the Chicago Blackhawks and the Blackhawks fans, man, I am like, I'm excited for it because one, I think Chicago fans don't get as much as they deserve sports wise. And you might say to yourself, that's pretty self-serving. I think it's pretty entitled and God damn it. That's, that's right. We deserve the right to be because we live here, right? Like everybody else around the country gets to strut their stuff, whether it be from LA, New York, Houston, Boston, you know, you got, you got towns that, that have gone on dynastic runs that, that don't compare to the city of Chicago, but you know, as, as a fan base and as a city, you root for who you root for. And I was just really thinking about it as I was talking to Bill on his podcast and also the day before about what these times and these moments mean and how few and far between they truly are. I look at my friends in Boston, my buddy Jim Murray, who I converse with quite often, right? Working on the sports hub, doing his thing. Like they, they're averaging like a championship every three years, whether it be the Patriots, the Bruins, the, the, the Celtics, whatever the case, like a run or a championship, like those type of things are happening in LA. You got the Los Angeles Lakers. You got the Dodgers. You got all these teams where you know, at some point, a star is going to land in star town. And then of course you've got New York where they're like our tortured cousins, right? Like <laughs> they got the Yankees, they got the Mets. You're supposed to win because it's New York. And when you don't board, you get raked through the coals. Like the Knicks, I, I don't understand how that thing has even been allowed to be like it is for as long as it's been like it is. And then you got Chicago where you think more free agents would land. You'd think there'd be more joy sports-wise. You'd think that we'd have some type of storied football history, especially when it comes to the Chicago Bears. And then you take a look at those records, you take a look at some of these runs, and you you, you leave yourself saying, like, man, what the hell? Like, at what point is it going to be our turn? And I was really thinking that because baseball does this, right? Baseball settles in and you have to ride the wave. And you got two teams who are below 500, who are average at best right now, but are in a division that says, hey, come on, we're going to hang out with y'all all season long. We ain't running away from you. Like, I don't know. I don't know if the Connor Bedard placement or moment in time is perfect, but hey, I'm here for whatever good times are around because the window that I expected in the, in the white Sox, seemingly with every Michael Kopech pitch with every Tim Anderson at bat <laughs> with every Luis Robert home run that seemingly is wasted. Cause no one is ever on base, you know, on the Cubs side of town, it's going to be time here to start spending money again and again and again and again, because you really seem like you're raking in the dough from all the buildups that have happened around the ballpark. So can't stop Suzuki, can't stop at Swanson. Like I'm ready for something to pop, man. And I know y'all come to this pod 
and talk about this pod and, and share this pod because y'all think every two days is just me watching the games and telling y'all how I feel about it. But as a whole, this shit is unsuitable, man. I'm sorry. There is no reason that the third market in the city, I'm sorry, that the third market in this country <laughs> should should sit back and be okay with the results of these sports franchises. None. So as I'm reading about the Bears being at a stalemate with Arlington Heights right now in terms of their new stadium and the plans, sitting on a $200 million piece of land. As I'm sitting here talking about the Bulls with, with Bill Simmons on his pod and all of my friends across the nation who just check in now just to f*** with me. They check in now. Hey, man, what, what's going on with them Bulls? With the smiley face or the, or the laughing tears face. Uh, you don't know what kind of day I was having? You feel me? <laughs> you don't know what's going on in my life. You just come in and just f*** with me about the team that I root for. Like, that's where it's gotten with me. And then the Sox thing, I, I turn on the Sox now. Remember back in the day, it was in like 99, 2000, where, where, <laughs> where the Bulls, pretty much the, the promos were, hey, come watch Allen Iverson play. Or come watch Stephon Marbury at the United Center. Like, I'm going to get into it next segment, but I'm watching this whole Angel series to see Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and Luis Robert Jr. because he's in turn into the best outfielder in baseball. Like, that's that's what I'm left with right now. As a team flounders and struggles and goes up and down in a division that is begging them to kick the out of it. No, nah, man. You can get greedy. And if you ain't going to get greedy, I'm going to get greedy every once in a while. And this happening right here in this segment. This is 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 absolutely unacceptable. At some point, one of these teams is going to have to take me for a ride as a fan. You know, this can't be these one-way relationships, y'all. We can't just sit, sit around and about the relationship we in we we either gotta hope for better or change it and guess what i ain't making no moves <laughs> i can i can insist upon them i can i can uh i can request them i can throw them out there for you but i ain't making no moves you ain't making no moves so at some point somebody gotta take us for the ride that we want and if it's about to be Connor Bedard, hey, brothers and sisters get ready to find your way back to the united center on nights that the bulls ain't playing Cause I'm, I, I'm up for, I'm up for sale now. <laughs> I done been through the ringer. No pun intended. Who, who wants my attention for the next two or three years? The Bears, y'all out to a good start. Yeah, I didn't hide every brown person and put them in a, a position of strength and power that I could ask for. <laughs> Quarterback, <laughs> GM, <laughs> president of the team, the Chicago Black Bears is what I like to call them going forward. That's cool. White the only, Sox. The only thing blacker uh, in Chicago than the Full Go Podcast. That, that's it. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> we beat them. Kyle put us over the top. <laughs> Shout out to Bill Simmons and his outreach program here in the city of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, man. I'm sick of this. Uh, I'm tired of coming on here episode after episode talking about what didn't go right, why it didn't go right, and how it won't go right the next time you see these. I'm tired of it, okay? I am a beleaguered, beaten down sports fan in the city of Chicago. And I hope that made everybody at FanDuel TV smile. I hope that was the local angle that y'all have been asking for and waiting for. Y'all have been waiting for me to break down about this teams in this city and it happens once every other year well damn it on episode 260 this is the breakdown that y'all wanted and you got it y'all can catch these breakdowns sundays tuesdays and thursdays until further notice okay i'm gonna find some way to be happy are we gonna talk about barbecue or tony being scared of barbecue or you know chris sitting amongst the rose petals in portland at some point in this pod we're gonna get it back to where it's supposed to be because i damn sure can't count on the teams that i root for now blackhawks don't mess this thing up so i can go for another ride this episode is brought to you by hotels.com 
I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Welcome back to the local angle right here on FanDuel TV. I'm your host, JJ Jastrzemski, the host of New York, New York, of course, on the Ringer Podcast Network. And to say we had some fun and some drama and some high stakes, finally, this baseball season provided that from our perspective after basically dragging our feet after basically boring us to tears after the first two and a half months of this year, what you got from a New York baseball perspective and what you got nationally on Wednesday is something we have not seen in the sport since 2012. And I understand the narrative that's out there regarding the no-hitter and how the no-hitter in many ways has been devalued and the idea that, yeah, we see so many, it's so hard to hit, batting averages are down, these bullpens are so good, you get combined no-hitters up the wazoo. That's all fair. That's all reasonable. However, the perfect game and the art of a perfect game, last time we saw one in the sport, it was Felix Hernandez in 2012. So what we witnessed on Wednesday night in Oakland It will go down, let's be real, as one of the more improbable perfect games we've seen in the sports history when you consider guys who have fit the bill as far as that goes compared to other guys who maybe don't necessarily have that sort of resume and cachet to be on the list of one of now 24 to go and throw a perfect game. But I think you could make the argument that Domingo Herman is going to go down as one of the most imperfect pitchers ever to go and throw a perfecto. Think about the tale for Domingo Herman. Domingo Herman was lucky to be in the rotation at the start of this year. Domingo Herman is coming off back-to-back starts against the Boston Red Sox and against the Seattle Mariners, respectively, where he got absolutely shellacked. To the point where you're like, there's no way in the world this guy is going to survive being in the Yankee rotation over the course of this entire regular season. Then you throw in the tail of Domingo Herman off the field, which is far from perfect. Missing the end of the 2019 season when the Yankees really needed him. Suspended for domestic violence. You think about earlier this year, the sticky stuff, which obviously pales in comparison, but you have a guy who's Far from perfect. But on Wednesday night, everything was perfect for Domingo Herman. And it's pretty wild thinking about the history of the New York Yankees and thinking about the history of perfect games by New York Yankee pitchers. It's Don Larson in the 1956 World Series. It's David Wells on Beanie Baby Day in 1998 against the Minnesota Twins with Paul O'Neill catching the last out. It's David Cohn on Yogi Berra Day in 1999 with Yogi Berra and Don Larson in attendance at the old Yankee Stadium. And Coney getting it done against the Montreal Expos. Don, David, David, and Domingo? Believe it. Believe it, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. That's a life-altering, life-changing moment for Domingo Herman and for Kyle Higashioka. Who are you kidding to catch her? They will do card shows. They will do autograph signings. They will do appearances now, basically, for the rest of their adult lives. 
celebrating one of 24 in the history of Major League Baseball. And a fun fact regarding what we saw Wednesday night in Oakland. Every time the Yankees have had a perfect game in their history, they've gone on to win the World Series. 56, they beat the Dodgers. Don Larson, obviously a big part of that. In 1998, best team in the history of my lifetime, the 1998 New York Yankees, go and sweep Tony Gwynn and the San Diego Padres in four straight. And then, of course, in 99, Yankees tap off team of the decade, beat the Atlanta Braves, and win the World Series yet again in a four-game sweep. If you want to be a believer in getting in on a trend, And I know the Yankees so far this year have shown you no reason to believe with their offense. And I don't care that they beat the living daylights out of the Oakland A's each of the last two days. Whoop they freaking do. Still a lineup with problems. Still a lineup with issues. Still a lineup that has all sorts of underperformance up and down, up and down, up and down we go. That said, 20 to 1. If you were a believer in a trend, that now will be live going into the second half of this year and going into the postseason. Every other time it's happened in Yankee history, we've been talking about the Yankees winning the World Series. I would not put my money on 2023 continuing that trend, but hey, you want to invest in Judge coming back? You want to tell me Carlos Rodon added to this rotation, changes things, they added the deadline, and you get 20 to 1 on the New York Yankees? 20 to 1 on the New York Yankees is usually a very good number. And the one thing I do believe the Yankees have going for them at this point in time is the league that they play in doesn't seem as loaded. Questions about the experience, as good as they've been, the Texas Rangers and the Baltimore Orioles are two very inexperienced baseball teams. Tampa Bay, I know they went to the World Series in the COVID year in 2020, but as good as they may be, and they give the Yankees fits, They have not exactly distinguished themselves in postseason play. They've had plenty of years. We saw it two years ago against the Boston Red Sox as a perfect example. Saw it even last year when they lost to the Cleveland Guardians in the first round of that best of three where they just don't do enough offensively and they're a regular season darling. I think from a value perspective, you could talk me into 20-1 with the Yankees. Even if I don't believe it. The number and the the value is there. Where it wasn't there at 10 to 1, it wasn't there at 12 to 1. You could talk me into 20 to 1, taking a roll of the dice, or even a 9 to 1 ticket on the Yankees to go and win the American League pennant. And we will see if this Domingo Herman perfect game is something that jumpstarts the Yankees going into the All-Star break and kind of gets them going for the second half of the season and beyond. They're dead in the division. Right now, if the season ended today, they'd be on the right end of making the postseason. So, going to bookmark this Domingo Herman perfect game. It's one of 24. Kind of came out of nowhere. Does it jumpstart the New York Yankees in 2023? That's the question. Now, for the other team in town, there was a whole lot of drama as well. And not as much drama on the field. More so about the drama off the field for what at the moment has been one of the worst teams that money can buy. There's no getting around it. The New York Mets, who have the highest payroll in all Major League Baseball. The New York Mets, who won 100 games a year ago, had everything going their way a year ago, have been nothing short of a colossal box office flop for the first half of this 2023 season. To the point where, Their megastar, gazillionaire owner had to announce via Twitter, hey, guess what? Time for me to meet the media. And I love the fact that Steve Cohen, as this public figure that he is, doesn't hide behind the keyboard, doesn't hide behind his minions. Yeah, it looked awkward sitting at that picnic table with the men on it. But you know what? You saw a guy that breathes. Met baseball that like loves it, that it agitates him every which way. The idea that he's got to sit there in front of a room full of men and women and talk about the fact that his team is stuck up the joint so far this year. 
that eats at someone as successful as Steve Cohen. And what I really liked about what I heard from the Met owner is this sort of level-headed, pragmatic, rational thought process to team building, to culture building, to things and elements that, simply put, have been lacking with the New York Mets for a long, long time. Buck Showalter and Billy Epler, GM and a manager, respectively, they kind of went from being guys that were praised for all of 2022, and they've been nothing but mocked throughout 2023. And that's life in a big city. You don't win, people are going to sell you right down the river. Buck was manager of the year. Buck could do every interview with a big smile on his face, and he was adored. He was loved. Now, bullpen's not as deep. His rotation hasn't been as good. Team hits, they don't pitch. They pitch, they don't hit. Makes the manager look a lot less smart. But Cohen basically shot down the notion that the GM or the manager are going to be fired to kind of jumpstart this team. Because I think that's, in many ways, the right course of action for Cohen. Because of what he alluded to. You want to bring in the best people to work for you. The best candidate's going to look at the situation and say, hold on a second. Guy in Buck Showalter won manager of the year a year ago. Now, all of a sudden, he has a bad half, and then you're looking to fire him in the middle of the year. You're not even giving him the year to figure out what's going on. That's showing you get it. That's showing you have a clue. That's showing to me that there is a long-term vision with this organization, which means they do have to get their farm system right. They're not necessarily going to be able to throw money at all of their problems. But I think the million-dollar question that Steve Cohen addressed regarding this year, the Mets, who have a lot of high-priced talent and have gotten a whole lot of underperformance, could be in a position, if they don't turn around within the next three or four weeks, well, you're talking about some serious things. Not anybody who would be here in the long term. More guys, short term. Think Robertson. Think Tommy Pham, and if he ever waived that player option or found a team willing to go and pay him $40 million a year, maybe it's Max Scherzer. Maybe those conversations are had. But the idea of Met and Seller in the same sentence, not outrageous after what you heard from the owner. But if you needed a little pat on the back, you got it. You got the right man in charge running your team. Now it's a matter of how the Mets get it right do they over the next 81 games of this year? Or are we talking about next year, the year after that, the year after that, to kind of get that form system to where it needs to be, where you're spending money and developing at a high level all at the same time? Tell you this, 40 plus to one on the Mets to win the World Series. As the great Randy Jackson once said, that's an opening dog. Local Angle, New York, New York with John G. Stremski. We're coming right back. 